ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Adele Dumont is a writer. Her first book came out of her experience teaching English to incarcerated refugees on Christmas Island. But her new book is something completely different and more personal. It's about a kind of secret life Adele was living for many, many years, a life she could barely acknowledge, even to herself. It involves hair pulling, the compulsive plucking of hairs from the crown of her head. It began as a teenage quirk that developed into powerful, uncontrollable urges, and then into protracted, ecstatic episodes where Adele could lose herself for hours. And although she was doing it all the time, for the longest time she had no name for it and couldn't bring herself to acknowledge it was even a thing. But it was a thing. Adele was eventually diagnosed with something called trichotillomania, obsessive hair pulling, and she discovered it was way more common than she thought. And if you think this sounds odd, ask yourself... Is there anything in the modern world of so little practical use that people lavish so much time and money and emotional labour on than our hair, getting it washed, coloured, straightened, curled and cut? It's almost like a shared guilty secret amongst us all, a kind of taboo. For Adele to write about her hair pulling was at first impossible, but then the words started to flow And the result is an extraordinary book she's written called The Pulling. Hi, Adele. Hi, Richard. You write very correctly that almost no one is happy with the hair they're awarded to in life. Mine is wavy and curly when it gets wet, and I wish it was straight and obedient. What was your hair like when you were little, and what did you you want it to be? Uh, My hair when I was little was always very, very thick and quite different to my younger sister who had much thinner hair. And so, yeah, I I think I was always secretly envious that my hair wasn't more manageable. Your early life, you write, was spent in kind of really unusual conditions. What was home to begin with for you and your family? Uh, So my early childhood was spent kind of all over New South Wales. My parents were both fruit pickers. And so... We lived a kind of itinerant lifestyle. So we had a combi van and at the start we had a a tent, quite a big tent, but, yeah, the tent was our home. And then once my sister came along, she's five years younger than me, then we upgraded to a caravan. How did your parents meet? So my father's originally from France. He came to Australia in the early 80s, fruit picking, doing fruit picking work, and then he met my mother who was... Yeah, the same, doing fruit picking work. They met in far north Queensland in Bowen, doing the tomatoes up there. It sounds vaguely romantic growing up in a family of itinerant fruit pickers, but what's the reality like, Adele? Yeah, I think a lot of city people tend to romanticise that kind of life, but um, it's hard. It's a hard way to make a living. But I think maybe what drew my parents both to that lifestyle was the kind of freedom it offered. So neither of them had been to uni. They saw it as much more appealing way to live than, say, working in an office or in a factory. How do you remember him going to work in the morning, your dad? My dad. I would be asleep and my dad would literally pick me up from my bed and then 
put me in the back of the combi because we would have a um, like a full double bed in the back of the car. And so I would wake in the orchards and my parents would have already been working probably for a couple of hours. That kind of does sound romantic, though. <laughs> it kind of does sound rather lovely. Do you remember that kind of sunny memories in your mind then? Oh, your yeah, very much so. I think as a child, yeah, it was, yeah, in some ways it was quite an idyllic kind of lifestyle. Like I had total freedom to do what I wanted for the, the whole day. They were frugal people. What kind of frugal habits did they have? It's it's hard because when you're a kid you don't you don't have any reference points. But yeah, maybe when I compare it to people I know now, then it, it feels feels a kind of elemental frugal kind of existence. Like I only had three toys, for example, growing up. Um, yeah, and they all had you know they each had their very distinct character. Um, but yeah, the, we didn't have a lot of stuff. Your dad seems like he was some, a remarkable autodidact. The fruit-picking dad who didn't want a formal job was a big reader. He read reference books, you write, that you used to bring home for school projects. Was that sheerly for his own pleasure? Very much so. Yeah, he is a total autodidact. So I think when, from when he was very, very young, he was reading dictionaries as a child. And yeah, it was always purely for pleasure. There was no other motivation there. He read the same book in different translations. How would he do that? Uh, so he would, um, he, he's taught himself numerous languages and he would have maybe an original novel open and then let's say the original was in French and then he might have a couple of English translations and then maybe one in German and one in Russian and be kind of reading them in parallel and then always like pointing out things to us as kids going, oh my God, like I can't believe they chose that word or like, you know, comparing to and arguing for one, why one might be better than the other. Was he forever telling you about the origins of words? Yes, yes. That's very much his um, passion is etymology. And he does it not in a kind of pretentious way. It's just, is just this endless source of fascination to him. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter what the topic of conversation is or where you are. He's always just latching onto objects or latching onto a word you've said and he'll ask you, oh, do you know the origin of that or do you know what that word is in such and such a language? Did you like that or was that annoying? Like if I tried uh, that with my daughter, she'd find that annoying, <laughs> I think. Uh, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say I liked it or I found it. It's just like the way he was. Did you speak French in the family house? He spoke French to the three of us and then we would reply in English. And again, that might sound odd or an unusual to an outsider, but for us, it, yeah, it was just the natural, natural way of things. And how was that when you went to France for the first time? Because, you know, Parisian French is a whole different thing from the rest of France. It was tricky because if you can't express yourself, then people tend to assume that you can't understand. And so, yeah, I remember a lot of people, you know, caught up in conversation and then I wouldn't be able to participate. And then they would maybe assume that I didn't, yeah, I didn't know what they were talking about. You said that you had big hair as a, as a, as a kid and that annoyed you. How did you like to wear your hair as a kid? Was it elaborate or, or, or pretty straightforward? Oh, uh, not elaborate. I would try to kind of make it take up as little space as possible. So, yeah, I would kind of tie it up and bunch it up. 
I didn't like to wear it out. Like you didn't want to draw attention to yourself? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I feel like if another girl had had that head of hair, they would have done more with it maybe or, yeah, tried out different styles. But for me it was like, yeah, I didn't want to draw attention to my appearance. Do you remember when the habit of pulling on your hair started? So it started I think when I was 17 and so I had very long hair and I would look at the the ends, so there might be some split ends, and then I would just, for some reason, yeah, be kind of intrigued by them. And then at some point I started to remove individual hairs from the head and then study that hair. I would look at its length and maybe see if the colour changed along its length. And then, yeah, I, I kept doing that, not not really paying it much attention. And then at some point I remember having a shower and then maybe for some reason being drawn to look in the mirror and then that's when I realised that I'd actually pulled this perfect circle completely clean of hair. What part of your head was it from? The very crown of my head. Kind of like the origin of it, of the, the swirl of hair. Exactly, yep. I think it's called the hole. What do you think would trigger an episode of hair pulling like that? Was it boredom or something else? At the time, I had no sense of what was triggering it. So it just it just felt like something I would do whenever I was alone, really. And now? Now I feel like almost anything can trigger it. So it could be some kind of negative emotion um, like boredom or sadness or loneliness but it could also be a positive emotion. It could be excitement. So for a long time, I found that paradoxical. You know, I thought, why would a positive emotion lead to pulling? But from what I understand now, it's like, I think it's called something like a regulation model where you're, yeah, your, your body's trying to get to this middle point. And if you kind of tip one way or the other, then you're trying to get back to that middle point. Was there a kind of physical sensation that would come upon you just before it? Yes. So it's tricky to describe, but it's just an urge is the best way to describe it. Maybe like if, um, I don't know, if you had a mosquito bite, you would feel an urge to scratch at it. Or maybe if you're about to sneeze, like you, you have a sense of something coming an urge that needs to be satisfied then. Like yes. I'm just thinking what it feels like to want to scratch a mosquito by just like, ooh, there's that kind of, yeah, I've got to do this or something yes. like that. Yes, Just a sense that, yeah, yeah you, you need to do something and you're about to do it and you have no no choice. And when you're about to do it is, mm-hmm. it, is it a single hair at a time? It will start with a single hair at a time and then it may escalate into maybe two hairs at a time or even, yeah, a bunch of hairs at a time. Will it only be from the crown of the head? So it originated from the crown of the head, but then it's kind of worked its way almost to cover all of my head. The brief flicker of pain you get when you when you pluck it out, is that welcome or unwelcome? I wouldn't call it pain. Actually, it's um, it's one of the things that's tricky to describe to an outsider, but for me it's completely painless and it always has been. Like I'm somebody who's very sensitive to pain, 
but this, yeah, this action, and I don't really understand what the mechanism is, but it, it's completely pleasurable. Like if I was to do it now, yeah. I think I'd, I'd be sort of wincing, wincing. in anticipation of a little of pain. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying because I know like if I, for example, have a Band-Aid on my arm and then I have to take it off, I hate doing it because, yeah, I wince. But for some reason, when it's from my scalp, it's pure pleasure. When you started doing it, what would you do with the hair once it was taken from your head? So when I started, I was still living with my parents. So I remember in my bedroom, I would just shove it down the side of my bed. Would you look at it and play with it, though, before you did that? Ah, yes, yes. So that's actually an important part of the process. So I would take each hair once it had been pulled and then inspect it. And basically what I was looking for was to see whether it had the root intact on the hair. Why was that important, do you think? I don't know. It just, it felt, it felt important. Maybe because you had the entirety of it. Maybe. I think it's it's tempting to ascribe some meaning to it or some explanation, but, yeah, it, it, it never felt explicable or rational. It just, that was what I was looking for, was the bridge. And would you lay it out in a certain way? Uh, this is, yeah, it's one aspect of the illness that I find tricky to talk about because I, I'm scared that listeners will maybe feel disgusted. But actually what I would do is put the root between my teeth and then strip, strip the, the root from the hair. And again, that's not something I decided to do. It just felt that's what needs to be done. You say so you realise you might have a problem on your hands when you noticed there was a kind of a, a, bald, a bald spot, a, a, a circle, like mm-hmm. a kind of circle right at the top. Did your family notice this was going on? No, because at that stage, because I had such a thick head of hair, it was very easy to hide. So, yeah, I could just wear a ponytail and nobody could tell. The secret of it. Did that make you anxious or was there something delicious about the secret? Definitely the latter. I feel like, again, this is only with, you know, with hindsight, but I feel like I've always had that capacity for or inclination to be secretive, like ever since I was very, very little. So this didn't feel like a new thing. It just felt this this is the way I am, like... I think most people are like that, though, aren't they? I mean, most of us like secret private lives. I mean, we're not the same when we're totally, when we know we're safely alone, really, as we are with other people, are we? Yeah, I think this is true. And obviously, I don't know what other people's secret lives (laughs) might look like. I guess, yeah, for for me, the secret life felt, or it eventually felt larger than my, my other life. Would your imagination run a little wild while you were doing this, given that you were sort of in this very, very personal, quiet little secret space? Were you, were you concocting stories or, or, or really just thinking about nothing at all, pleasure, a pleasurable nothingness? I think maybe the best way to explain it is it, it felt like my mind was in a very different state to what it usually was. Um, so there was something about when I eventually enter what I, what I think of as a kind of trance, then my mind felt very calm. The quality of the thought 
felt different. I feel like usually, and I think this is probably fairly typical, um, maybe especially of a modern mind, that it's kind of jumping from thing to thing. But when I was in that trance, I felt like the thought was, it was larger, it felt expansive, it felt deep, like I could I could have a, a line of thought and, and just follow it forever and it, it felt very natural. Was your mind settling to some degree? Was mental chatter and distraction quietening? Yes, yes. Yeah, you could say that. You said when you'd finished with the hairs, you'd, you'd put them somewhere? Where, mm-hmm. would you, where would you shove them? Uh, down the side of my bed. And was there a day when you realised there was more than a few of them down there? Yes. So I was quite a, like, messy teenager, but I remember at some point I was cleaning my room and then I kind of thought, okay, I better get rid of all this random hair and then kind of shoved it all together into a ball. And then I put it into a double plastic bag and I thought, I need to get rid of this. And I remember still feeling the the weight of that bag and being quite alarmed because like, obviously... Like evidence. Like, was it evidence or something? Yes, yes. That was very much how I thought of it as evidence. Evidence of what I've done, evidence that I've done something wrong. So that's why you double bagged it? Yes. Like a criminal pathologist or something like yes. that? And where would you put it? Then I would put it in the garbage bin outside. I think... I, look, this is the thing about your book. I, I begin to think about all these things I've never really thought about, which is like mm-hmm. I, I realise I kind of think of my hair as a thing, a single thing, my mm-hmm. hair. Yeah. And, in fact, it's a kind of a, a great big mass of thousands, many thousands mm-hmm. of, of, of hairs, plural. Do you see your hair, do you think of your hair as a, a thing or as a collection of thousands of hairs? Yeah, very much I see them as individual hairs. I'm able to to tell the the qualities of an individual hair purely through touch. So my fingers will be able to to tell if a hair has a particular thickness or if really? I have a little... You can tell the kink. difference? Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, the pulling is not kind of, um, you know, it's not random or I can't just pull out any hair. I very much have to kind of, my fingers will forage for a, a particular hair and then kind of zoom in on that. And is it a different hair for different times or is it always the same perfect kind of hair you're looking for, the ideal? Is there an ideal hair you're looking for? The ideal hair is one that has the root attached and that's not something that obviously you can tell, you know, from the surface because the root's underneath the surface. But somehow my fingers have developed this sense where they're able to like intuit which hair is most likely to have the root attached. And if you produce it with the root, is there a a profound feeling of satisfaction when that happens? Yes, yes, very much. And does it then go away, the need to pluck or not? Unfortunately not. Um, So that whole process leading up to removing an individual hair where I'm kind of foraging and stroking and probing and selecting and then removing, then it's back to the start. So it feels like this loop. You write that you were continuing to do this while you were at, at uni. And how difficult was it getting to conceal the, the bald patch that was on your head at that time? 
Yeah, first year of uni, I think I by that point I probably would have pulled three quarters of my hair. So three quarters of your hair? Yeah. Was it all around the top? So were you, were you like a sort of a tonsured monk or something from the Middle Ages? Yes, very much so. Yeah. In fact, that's what the classic pattern of pulling gets called is a, a tonsure pattern. So it's like a rim of a rim of hair. Yeah, like a circumference around your head and then the complete top is gone. Um so yeah, going to uni it would be this kind of meticulous arrangement every morning of my hair to to make sure nobody could tell. Were you conscious of the fact you could be it's a funny phrase, do you use found out or something? Yeah, and that's how I thought of it is found out. So yeah, it it made me very kind of vigilant if rain was forecast or yeah if people wanted to go swimming or even just people noticing. Like I, I felt very kind of tense always around people that they, yeah, they would look and they would tell. Was it like you have this secret life, this secret world you can disappear into and you think to yourself, I barely understand this and I really don't care to have to explain it to anyone else because I don't fully understand it myself? Yeah, I don't know that it had to do with understanding. It was more just I was possessive of it. Like this was my my thing, my space, and I didn't want to have to share it with anybody. Did you have a word for it yet while you are at uni? Did you have a name for it or did you ever think you ought to, I don't know, seek some professional help given that there was such this, this radical, radical bald patch on your head? Yeah, it sounds strange to say, but honestly... Honestly, no. Like it, it didn't even occur to me to, yeah, to talk to to anybody about it. When anyone might have seen something or had suspicions, and they tried to raise it with you, what would you do? I would make it very clear that that was basically off limits. You said that for a while, the these episodes would be quite protracted. How long could you step into this world for and be in that world for at a time? Um, so in the first year of uni, which was, yeah, one of the worst kind of chapters, it could easily be hours, like three or four hours would be quite common. And then if there was a day like on the weekend where I didn't you know, need to be anywhere, it could be like seven, eight hours in the one position pulling. What would that position be? It might start like I was sitting at my desk or on my bed um, and then I guess you know if you're making those movements continually your body tires and then you end up kind of hunched over. It sounds very trance-like. Was it also ecstatic like a rhapsody of a kind? Yes, yes. And while it's going on were there other things going on that needed to be attended to that that you really couldn't attend to? Yeah, there could be. Like there's been moments, say, where, you know, my mobile might be next to me and it's ringing and, yeah, I know I should be answering it but I simply can't. Or there could be something in the oven if I'm at home or I remember once we had a washing machine that would um, kind of drain into a sink and... I remember this one time the, the sink must have, somebody must have left the plug in. So the sink was obviously filling with water and then overflowing. And I could hear all of this from within the trance. 
and you know it had happened before and I knew I you know I should get up and take the plug out let the water drain so the water doesn't flood everywhere but yeah again I, I wasn't able to so I could I could hear the water flooding the laundry and then seeping into the carpet near me but I couldn't do anything. Was there a natural point when you could stop or come out of this trance? There comes a point, but I, I don't feel able to choose that point. It's, yeah, it's almost like whatever the thing is needs to run its course. And then maybe I reach a level of exhaustion and then I'm able to leave it. Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net. .au slash conversations. Did you find you could do this hair pulling surreptitiously in public, like at a cafe or somewhere like that? Yeah, sometimes I might deliberately go to public places like libraries or cafes, basically to escape the house. In the house, I felt kind of, you know, there was nothing to stop me. Whereas in public, sometimes I felt like a little bit more protected because I thought if people are watching, then I won't be able to do it. But would the urge come up on you anyway? Yeah, the urges might come and then I would do it very surreptitiously. Would you sort of need to then go away and hide for a little bit, like in the bathroom or somewhere like that? Sometimes I... It wasn't It wasn't ever a, a plan, but I might use the bathroom in a public place and tell myself, Adele, you're just going to the bathroom, you're just going to be five minutes. But then once I was in that cubicle where nobody could see me, then the urges might just arise and then I could become quite trapped. People bang on the door. Women's bathrooms are pretty congested places a lot of the time. Yes, uh, quite a few times I remember having protracted episodes in, in public bathrooms and then, yeah, it, it could literally be a couple of hours and then, yeah, I remember a few times cleaners knocking on the door. What brought you to actually finally admit that this was a thing to someone in your life? I think it got to the point where it was completely out of control and I was just completely desperate, really. Um like my partner at the time had kind of been encouraging me to to go to a doctor and I was quite resistant to that idea. But, yeah, eventually I got so desperate that I did go to a GP. Did the GP have any idea of what this condition was? 
no. I think I said the name of it, trichotillomania, and then she said, oh, is that nail biting? And I said, no. And then she kind of reached for her computer and looked it up and kind of reassured me a little bit and then said, yeah, I'll, I'll write you a referral for a psychologist. You knew the word for it by then. How did you find it? Just with Dr. Google? Uh, no, actually it was back at uni. I discovered the word for it and I can't actually remember what sent me looking, but I found a book about, I think it was called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing and it was this book that had chapters of all different um, patients with with various kind of problems. And then, yeah, this one particular chapter was somebody who pulled out their eyelashes, I think. Did that lead you then to trichotillomania, this diagnosed condition that's in the DSM yes. about pulling? And what, what did it mean for you to realise that you weren't the only one in the world that was doing this? I was actually quite annoyed. It was like I'd been robbed of something. Why? What, what had you been robbed of? Well, because it was my thing and I thought it was my almost like a creation or an invention and it was like, uh, yeah, it was almost like I'd been kind of plagiarised. <laughs> That's how protective you felt about it. Yes, yes. What about the really specific aspects, like the really fine granular details? Did you see that reported elsewhere of, of what you were doing? Like the desire to pull out by the roots? Yeah, at the start when I, I had that, that anger, I thought, okay, but surely my version of this thing is is still different, you know? Like maybe these other people have some like weak imitations, but mine is like it still has all its own idiosyncratic detail. But then the more that I read about the condition, the more I came to see that actually, yeah, even in the specifics, it's, yeah, it's almost eerie that people follow this kind of pattern. So to give you some examples, like the the pattern on people's head that forms, people will pretty much always start from the, the centre of the crown and then um, work towards the ears and then forwards and then back. Pretty much nobody pulls right from the nape of their neck. And that's quite a predictable sequence. Um, yeah, and then with the individual hairs, yeah, it's, it's quite common for people to be fascinated and obsessed with the roots. In 2010, you went to Christmas Island as a volunteer mm -hmm. teaching yep. English to asylum seekers who are incarcerated, and there are all kinds of good reasons why anyone would want to do that. But were you also trying to get out of your own head for a, a while? Was that part of your thinking in wanting to go there? For me, the pulling would often become very intimately connected to a particular place. So if I had spent, you know, months pulling in, a, in my bedroom, then that place would feel like... It was like the place where I pull. So I thought if I can remove myself, then maybe that will be like a fresh start. Was there part of you that thought it was some sort of teenage thing that you needed to grow out of? And if you were there in Christmas Island, amongst the, some of these harrowing stories of escape, you might sort of, I don't know, make you grow up or something. Was that the story you told yourself? Yeah, I always felt like I don't have the right to to have this, or well, I don't have the right not to be happy, 
really, or I don't have the right not to be healthy because I live in this first world country, I have all of these privileges, whereas I saw in my mind asylum seekers as having real problems. So I thought maybe if I put myself in close contact with these people with real problems, then that'll jolt myself out of these habits. And did it? No. Did it make it worse in some ways insofar as being surrounded a lot of that stress and uh, and trauma? Did it make you want to sort of retreat into that world a bit even more? Uh, one curious thing about the centres is that there are cameras everywhere and so that felt protective for me because I felt that people were watching and when people are watching, that stops me from pulling. But then as soon as I was out of the centre, then yes, then the urges would would rise up. So then you found out what trichotillomania was and you found that there are other people in the world with it, people with symptoms that are a lot like yours. How common is trichotillomania in the general population? Yeah, it's hard to give exact estimates, but I think people believe it's between 0.5 and 2%. That's a lot of people. Why is this the first time I'm only talking about this? Or this is the first time I've ever been made aware of this? Is it some sort of like widespread guilty secret or something? Yeah, I, I would say shame. Medieval monks, as we said, would tonsure themselves cut that kind of circle mm-hmm. in their hair, cut mm-hmm. from the crown. Do we find evidence of trichotillomania in ancient times? I'm just wondering if this is a modern thing or whether we have stories of this going back to the earliest days of you and humans have been able to write and talk about such things. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the mysteries for me is that, yeah, people today aren't very familiar with the condition. But yes, you're right. Actually, we have references going back to ancient times. Hippocrates, who's kind of considered the the father of medicine, he wrote these kind of checklists of symptoms for doctors to follow. And hair pulling was, was in amongst that list. There's references to hair pulling kind of in the context of emotional turmoil in the Bible, in the Iliad, in Shakespeare, in, yeah, lots of classic works of literature. Samson loses his hair, and when it grows back, he brings down the whole temple. It seems like, uh, I can just think, just the top of my head, multiple things I've, I've mm-hmm. learned from history that show how much hair has been fetishised mm-hmm. over the years. It's something that I don't suppose I was aware of, or maybe you were aware of, until you started thinking hard about this. Are there any theories on what might trigger or what might be the triggers, plural, of this condition of trichotillomania that you have? I guess it's important to say there's no consensus about what causes trichotillomania. There's lots of different theories. Are there thoughts that could be related to, I don't know, some childhood reaction to a stressful or Mm -hmm. chaotic incident? Yeah, um, some people think that it could be connected to some kind of massive change in, in childhood, like maybe parents divorcing or car accident, that that can be quite a clear trigger for some people, but a lot of people aren't able to identify a clear trigger. You now know that it's called trichotillomania, which comes from the Greek, Does trichot being hair, mania meaning 
Madness. Madness. What's the tiller pulling, I suppose? It's yeah. tilling, as in like, okay, so yeah. hair pulling madness is what it translates. Mm-hmm. It's in the, the uh, DSM, the, the Great Manual of, of Psychology and Psychological Disorders and the like. So it's called a condition or a disorder or even a disease. Is there something missing from the experience that's not described in these clinical descriptions? Yeah, when I read those kind of descriptions, they feel very reductive. I mean, the DSM entry for trichotillomania is like five lines and I feel like I've written a whole book about it and I've still omitted an awful lot of the experience. Do other animals do this other than humans? Yes, actually. Um, So among animals, and interestingly only among caged animals, it's quite a documented phenomenon. I think it's called barbering. But, yeah, animals who are stressed will, um, yeah, like birds can pluck at their own feathers or mice can bite at their own fur. The other interesting thing is that people have done brain studies of people with trichotillomania and they've found that there's this hyperactivity in regions of the brain that are usually dormant in humans. But in animals, those areas of the brain are responsible for things like um, nest building and food hoarding and grooming. I don't know what to make of that. That seems really amazing to me. Um, It seems, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. And there is a connection to being stressed or caged. Amongst some of these, yes, these animals. Yes, yes. Are there support groups for online support groups, for example, for people with uh, trichotillomania? I've done my best to try to find an, an actual support group because you would think for something that represents 2% of the population, there would be something out there. Um, but there's no physical, I mean, in real life group out there. Yeah, but there's, there's stuff online. Maybe it's because it is something that's intensely private, as you say. People don't really feel like talking about it. People like feeling like you do, that their own experience is unique and they don't want to talk about it with other people. Do you want to talk about it with other people who have it? Uh, I mean, it's not my natural impulse. I feel like, yeah, I have to force myself. Have you seen other people do it surreptitiously in, in public? I haven't seen it myself, but my boyfriend at the time he's developed this kind of uh, attunement to to me and to my movements, which meant that he's been able to detect occasionally somebody in public pulling. Um, and I think once or twice he's even approached them to say, oh, actually my girlfriend has the same problem as you, like here's her phone number. And do people call? No, no. I don't know whether they might think it was some like strange pick-up tactic. Is there a kind of a therapy for it, like cognitive behavioural therapy to address the habit? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different approaches that get used. Yeah, CBT is probably the most common one. And is it effective? Uh, It can be short-term, but not long-term and not kind of consistently. How did the idea to write about this very private thing come to you, Adele? I guess like with so many aspects of this condition, it it didn't feel like a, a decision I came to rationally. It just felt like something I needed to do. Um, 
And at the start, I, I felt this strong need to write about it, but I wasn't physically able to. So even in my own private journal, I'd never, ever, in like almost two decades, never, ever mentioned this thing. So I remember going out and then buying a special journal and then finding this like secret hiding spot in my room for it. And then, yeah, slowly I began to to write in there. And what was that process like? Was it given that you found it impossible to begin with? Do you remember how the words came to you? Uh, I was surprised at how how it felt like I I never got to the the end of it. Like I, I thought maybe when I started, oh, you know, I might be able to feel like twenty pages, and then I'll have done a decent job of describing this thing for myself. But it just felt like the more I wrote, like the more, you know, the the more complex I realised it was. And then, yeah, I, I felt like I had this endless material and like endless ways to analyse it. And once you'd written it, was there a, a sense of greater mastery over it? Is that even the word for it? Or a sense of being able to hold the story of what it is in your hand? When I started writing and then I would pull, when I was pulling in my mind, I would think, oh yeah, like that's that bit in the book. Oh, that's that bit in the chapter. Like this strange recognition and strange kind of pleasure in putting it into words because it's such an inherently wordless experience. Yes. Like I was able to make, make sense of it, I guess, for myself, but you would think if you understand something so intimately that you should maybe have more power over it. But I, I don't feel like it really weakened the, the urges. Like I, at the end of the day, I was still left with the disease. Can you manage it better? Yes, definitely. During this period, you were reading a memoir from a woman who suffered from anorexia. What did you think as you were reading that? I guess going into that book, anorexia for me was something quite incomprehensible and I probably thought it affected the kind of girl that I wasn't, like the kind of girl focused on her appearance and the kind of girl who wanted to be really thin. Um, Then reading Fiona's book, I don't think I've ever read a book where I had so many moments of this really bodily kind of recognition. So one of the things that that Fiona says is that she desperately wanted to eat, but she couldn't. And for me, the parallel to my own experience was that I desperately wanted to, to stop pulling, but I couldn't. Didn't she say that being asked to eat was like having someone bring a boot to her on a plate and exactly. ask her to eat that? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, for me, being asked to not pull my hair was equivalent to that. And you note that both of these conditions are forms of subtraction. Yes. I think some people might connect anorexia to this idea of, like, iron will, and then when it comes to my condition, they might see it as a failure of willpower, like I should be able to control myself. 
But actually, yeah, ne- neither condition really has anything to do with willpower at all. Um, and I think it might be tempting to see the two as opposites because anorexia is kind of approaching this strange, thin ideal that we have, whereas my condition is a complete departure from any kind of beauty convention. After a while, you said you began to realise this thing isn't really even about hair at all. Mm. What do you think it is about? I remember I had a psychologist who, you know, I, I would describe my symptoms in this intricate detail and at one point she said to me, Adele, like, I don't, I'm not really that interested in the, the pulling. Like, it, do, it doesn't really matter that you pull. Like, some people will pull, some people might drink, some people might cut themselves, some people might gamble. Like, at the end of the day, that's just a symptom. And really, we need to look at what's underneath, what's driving any of that behaviour. And I think in all of these conditions, it really boils down to to feeling or to not wanting to feel particular things. Now that we're kind of at the end of this conversation, I think maybe some people would be expecting for me to ask you to tell a story of recovery. Mm. Like I'm fine mm-hmm. now. What do you think of this whole idea of recovery anyway? Uh, that's <laughs> that's a tricky question. Um, do you believe in it? Uh, for me personally, I feel like maybe I'm always going to live with this illness in the you know, in the same way that somebody who is addicted to alcohol always has to be vigilant. I feel, I feel I'm, I'm like that. You know, there'll be like the, the urges might wax and wane and maybe over time I'll feel like I'm improving, but still, still the thing is a part of me. I think there's something really valuable in what you've written. I think it's really valuable. Um, I've never read anything quite like it, I don't think. And something very valuable in you talking about this process you've gone through, this aspect of yourself as a kind of a forceful and persistent investigative journalist of your own psyche in, in all of this. It seems to reveal some general truths about who we all are when we're alone mm. and our own private lives mm. and the kind of the role of the id and how hard it is to kind of investigate one's own id, that kind of not particularly logical, great big voice of needs and wants and desires and fears and all that sort of thing at the heart of who we are. Do you think about that? Yeah, and I think for probably every individual who pulls, there might be some different function there or pulling might have a particular meaning for a particular person. So I think for some people it might be an escape. For some people it might be a comfort, it could be a punishment, it could be a reward. Um, yeah, I, I've I've read quite a lot by this one particular psychologist who's studied the condition very deeply, and he says that there are some things like hair pulling that can seem so almost trivial. But actually, when it comes to something that doesn't seem doesn't seem complicated, actually, that can be the most complex of all. Um, and something like a habit, yeah, it it can be connected to something very, very deep within us. Adele, it's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your story. 
Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.